Hello, and welcome to The Heart of It, the podcast that gets to the heart of what we do and why we do it. I'm your host, writer and author Kate Sevilla, and each week I'll be taking a closer look at the working lives of passionate and creative people. This week, our guests are Sarah Ellis and Helen Tupper from the company Amazing If, which focuses on making work better for everyone. They are also the authors of the number one Sunday Times best-selling business book, Squiggly Careers, Ditch the Ladder, Discover Opportunity, Design Your Career. Sarah and Helen both have incredibly impressive backgrounds, and it was fantastic to speak with them about their own squiggly careers and what it's like to work together and write together as a business duo who are also best friends. They also share with us how they both manage their own mental health and confidence gremlins at work. Plus, of course, we discuss what's ultimately at the heart of their work on an individual basis and how those two motivations come together to help them run a successful business. Sarah Ellis, Helen Tupper, thank you so much for joining us in the Heart of It podcast. Thank you very much for having us. To kind of kick off, I really would love to talk to you about your amazing company, Amazing If. Um, Firstly, Sarah, why don't you share with us how you two met? Oh, well, we met at university about 21 years ago now. We were not friends at that time, (laughs) (laughs) which sounds more dramatic than it is, but I just think we aren't, we weren't naturally friends because we were on quite a small degree. And Helen was life and soul of the party, sociable, much more extroverted than me. And I think, you know, just probably enjoying her university experience, transitioned into her university experience more naturally than perhaps I did. And I'm much more introverted a little bit intimidated and scared of extroverts some of the time, I think. find them a bit overwhelming. Fair enough. I'd had a last-minute change of heart as to what I was going to study. So I was planning to study sociology or philosophy outside chance of like English literature, which gives you a sense that they're the subjects that I loved. And then I decided at the last minute, I got really panicky that I wasn't going to get a job, which is not true. Like it would, I'm sure it would have been fine. And thought, oh, no, I need to do something really vocational. So then I rocked up to this really businessy economics how to like run a business full of people who wanted to be the next Richard Branson and thought oh okay this is a bit different I'm not sure I'm not sure how I got here but hey let's kind of go with it but that's how that's how we met and how did you end up working together Helen if you want to take that one yeah so I guess after university we became friends uh, (laughs) and actually in the beginning our career paths you know, at some points they weren't that dissimilar. So we both went on to graduate schemes of FMCG companies. I really enjoyed that, Sarah less so. Um, But we kind of bonded, we started to bond over these career experiences because one of the things that connected us was our ambition and Mm. like our interest in the world of work. Like we were geekily interested in work, I would say. And our conversations would both be about like, we had this thing about afternoon tea. We used to meet a lot for afternoon tea. So they were either quite geeky about afternoon tea or about work and what we were doing and the companies we worked in. Like, Beautiful combination, really. <laughs> mm. It really was. <laughs> it really was. I think people would have, if they listened to us, they probably would have thought we were slightly strange, but that was what we liked to talk about. And when we started to work together, it was quite a few years down the line, really, after university. It was probably about 13, 14 years after that point of graduating and our careers had taken us in different directions and we'd stayed friends and we'd connected through all of that. But there was this point sort of around 2012 where 
suddenly we were working in the same city at the same time and that hadn't been the case up to that point our careers had taken us to different places though we'd stayed connected and we just started to talk about what what work and careers was looking like for us same similar conversation that we'd always had really but I think we came to this realization that the careers we'd expected to have these ambitious careers where we'd get to the top and we'd climb the ladder and we'd get promoted suddenly that wasn't the career that we'd experienced and also it wasn't the career that really felt like the one that we wanted to continue to experience and we talked about this notion of you know instead of the desire to climb a ladder and you know progressively go up a staircase actually our careers were more squiggly and Sarah drew this squiggly picture and we were like wow isn't this great isn't this great Um, (laughs) and then we started to reflect that other people were also experiencing this squiggle but they weren't saying isn't this great they were saying Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with this and we thought that the squiggle was full of opportunity for people to develop but recognize that there was some kind of gap if we were saying isn't this great but other people were saying I don't know what to do with this we felt like we wanted to help people and so that's really the moment at which we sort of said well let's just do something together let's combine the mentoring and different programs and things we're involved in and let's just help people together and that was the starting point that conversation that idea and I wouldn't even say that we thought of it as working together it wasn't like a job or a company it was just this thing we wanted to do together to help people to feel better about the world of work that they were experiencing and that was really it but it was a starting point for something that grew quite quickly after that yeah absolutely and am I right in the because I think how I became aware of you was the book and then the podcast and then obviously through the book I learned about Amazing If but what was the actual order was it Amazing If and then podcast and then book Yeah, so that's exactly that way around. So again, when we say amazing if it wasn't a master plan of a business, it was... (laughs) You didn't automatically put a business plan on a napkin and go, oh my God, we're geniuses. No, no, I I, I mean, that says everything, doesn't it? I drew a picture of a squiggle and we were like, yeah, that that seems about right. Um, So it just shows you, uh, never discount those little doodles that you do. But all we did, we'd got full-time jobs still. And we just started running um, some career development workshops kind of in our own time. And neither of us got kids at that point. So we could do that. We were kind of very in control of our own time. And we just started trying out and testing a different way of delivering learning. Zero slides, having lots of conversations, having some fun with it, being quite mm-hmm. playful and just enjoying it, kind of taking it seriously, but not taking ourselves too seriously, I kind of hope. And I think it was at that point we started to realize that our approach, I think, was practical. It felt very grounded in the day-to-day and useful. It was something that people could go away and use the next day, the next week. And we loved the theory. We loved the kind of the theory and, and the big ideas. But I think the probably the thing that we're good at is translating those into things that are simple and straightforward for everyone to use, essentially. So we just started doing that. We started our podcast a couple of years ago, probably two and a half, three years ago now. My mum listened, probably no one else slowly but surely a few more people started listening and then actually over time the podcast actually got a really kind of loyal following and people started to share it with other people people started to share what we did in their companies and so we used to take holiday from our main jobs to go and do workshops in companies so we'd take holiday from one job to go and do another job which now I say that I'm like what were we thinking but at the time relaxing I used to buy more holiday in order to do that (laughs) 
So we used to, so you like with our own money, we would buy holiday and be like, what we're going to use that for is working more, which I don't think makes us sound very fun, but I, I, don't know, I think we are fun at times. So we, we did that. And then actually the book came last. Um, our editor at Penguin saw Helen actually present this idea of squiggly careers using all of the drawings that we use. We live draw in all of our sessions and actually got in touch with us and just said, I, I think that's really fascinating. I think it'd be really interesting. And then we, we've kind of just developed it from there. So it's really been something that has gone from, it was definitely an idea. It was about kind of solving a problem. We, we talk a lot about democratizing development, making learning and development available for everyone. We think everyone should be able to have a career that they enjoy, regardless of level or type of company they're in or life stage that they're at. And it's really been about taking that and exploring it and expanding it which was yeah, an idea, borderline passion project, hobby. Then I think it became a side project, partly because it was cool to have a side project. So we were like, yeah, we've got one of those. And then slowly but surely it became a business. But incredibly gradually, Helen actually left her job at Microsoft to be full-time in Amazing If before I did. And then I joined her, kind of got a bit jealous basically about, and, and also wanted a bit of the control. I was like, oh, I don't like the idea what that I don't get. doing with this business that we didn't know we were going to have. Yeah, I need to, <laughs> need to start making some decisions. But, you know, we we always needed to pay ourselves. You know, we own our company ourselves. We don't have any external investment. And we've got big mortgages and kids that are super expensive. So, again, we, we had a real kind of reality around at what point was it a viable business and in, we wanted to grow it in the right way and in a really sustainable way. And so that's what that's what we've done over the last couple of years. That's incredible. And Helen, I think it's also really interesting. So you made the decision to kind of go full-time at Amazing If first. What was that like for you? Because going from corporate money to running your own thing, and as you said, mortgages, kids, um, what was that like for you to kind of be the first one to make that leap? It was, yeah, it was a really interesting point. And I think it was partly provoked by some career conversations I was having at Microsoft. So at the time I was commercial marketing director and Microsoft has this really clear succession planning like framework where they call it slate planning. And so you always have to know the next two people who are going to do your job. And equally, there are other people who want to know if you want to do their job. So you're constantly having career conversations about which slate you're going to be on. And I was having these conversations with people and I felt like all of the options were really interesting but it wasn't what I wanted to do because the thing that gave me the most joy was the thing that I was doing on the side that I wasn't spending five days a week on I was squeezing it in here there and everywhere and it was the emails I was getting from people about courses they'd been on with us you know, 18 months before that and how it had informed their career choices or the message we'd get from someone who had listened to our podcast and had had a difficult conversation with their manager as a result. And I was like, well, that's me. I seem to be making the biggest difference in that thing that I'm doing over there. And I didn't feel like I could have really honest career conversations with Microsoft if I was saying I want to be on that slate because as exciting as those opportunities were and and as grateful as I was for those opportunities the thing that excited me most was this other thing and I I talked to my husband about it first and he was like hold on (laughs) hold on (laughs) no thanks Helen this doesn't have to be a binary choice (laughs) because I think I'd gone I don't think I'm going to work at Microsoft anymore. I'm going to do Amazing If. And he was like, maybe there's something in the middle. (laughs) Have you talked to them about a few days here and a few days there? And I was like, look, 
give me a few months to think about this and explore. Like I will commit to exploring what this could look like rather than the binary choice that I have made. But ultimately, if after that period of exploring and having some conversations, I get to the same conclusion, then I've got to that conclusion and that's what I will be doing. So I was like, I'm, I'm, I listen and I'll explore, but you know, trust me where I get to in terms of the outcomes. So then I had some conversations and I was really honest with my manager who was, it was brilliant that he was so open to those conversations. And what I realized was the more I talked to it, that as an option that I was going to leave and do amazing if full time, the more comfortable I became with that conversation and the less scary it felt for me. And then Ultimately, it just, you know, it felt I felt like I've been talking about it for so long because I was also on this really long notice period that by the time it happened, I was like, I'm ready. I'm here. I thought I was going to do this six, nine months ago. And and the day is finally here. And so it felt actually quite an easy transition for me because I think I'd done quite a lot of the mental hard work in the run up to it. You know, the unattaching myself from a corporate identity thinking through what my, you know, to coin a phrase like the financial runway was, like how much money I had in the bank at Amazing If that meant that if it all didn't work, I was okay and I could go back to what I'd done before. So I'd I'd gone through a lot of the practicalities and some of the emotional stuff so that I was like raring to go on like the day I left Microsoft. I was like, I can't wait to go do Amazing If full time. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It is like, it is, um, it is such a risk and it's so interesting, like the way that money kind of can dictate that. So it's like for me at the moment, I'm going through like this weird kind of hold that money can have on the decisions that you make. Um, Sarah, what was that like for you from like a your relationship with money perspective to also kind of make that leap and, and join Helen in that? Or was it was your need to help control things greater than your financial security? I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a good question. I think I had to engage with and take more interest in my finances than I ever had before. So I've yeah. always worked for really big companies. And I've always been in a privileged position where I you know I could always feel confident I can pay mortgage or rent as yeah. it was for a long time in London, obviously. And then, you know, all, all of the bills and those kind of things. So I don't buy into, oh, it's a safe and secure option to stay working in a company or a big company. I don't think that's true because I think companies go through so many restructures and redundancies now. And I think I don't want people to ever feel bad that like, oh, I'm that's a safe choice. So I shall feel bad about that choice. And also both Helen and I loved it. I loved working at Sainsbury's and like, I was really, really happy there. I think it was more than just thinking about what needs to be in place so that the finances don't hold us back. I think I got to that point though, before I made the leap, I had a harder time letting go of my previous identity than Helen did. Helen is pretty good. Like once she's going to do something, she makes it happen. She's like a whirlwind of energy and intensity all at the same time (laughs) um which is brilliant when you're running your own business I would say but I think for me you know even just stuff that you know you should you should just let go of like what your job title is that thing of like are people only talking to me because my job title and the brand that I work for are impressive am I only good because I'm in a big company is that what I'm good at so I don't see myself even now I would never describe myself as an entrepreneur that's never a possibility that I'd really anticipated. I've actually worked in lots of different areas in corporate. So I always liked moving around. I love variety. I'm definitely a jack of all trades rather than a kind of master of any. But, you know, I I don't think I ever thought, oh, I'm going to run my own business. I didn't really feel like that was probably me or what I had to offer. So 
getting my head around all of that definitely took longer because the finances really, once you work out your, it's a bit like doing your minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. Once you know what you need, it's like, what what do I absolutely need to pay all the bills and not to be stressed? Helen and I are both really clear about, we're not going to be like, just, if that's stressing us out all the time, we'll have to say yes to work we don't want to do and all of those kind of things. So we knew what that minimum was. That wasn't the problem for me. The problem was letting go of all of that other stuff and just feeling brave enough that that was that was the choice that you're going to make. But when you start to think about it, like I said, I don't think the other choices are safer choices. And you do also start to appreciate, okay, but if this doesn't work out, you can go and do something different. And and that's fine too. And you'll learn a lot. And I think that was ultimately the tipping point for me was thinking, I know I'm going to enjoy it because I'd already tested it. I know the idea works because we'd already tested it kind of what else do I need? You know, when you start to go, what else do, do has to be true for me to go and do this? So either you want to go and give it a go or you don't. And and ultimately I I did and it's best decision I ever made. Yeah, I think what you said about identity is such a huge thing. You do get so kind of tied to uh, a job title or the idea of were people only going to want to talk to me because I work for this brand that everyone knows and loves and they can immediately connect with what I do. I also think there's something to be said for when your job is really obvious and straightforward and you can be like, I do marketing at Tesco. Like people just get it. It's when you're like, well, we have this idea and and then like drawing like the squiggly thing is just sometimes it's just like, okay, where where do we go with this? So it sounds to me that Helen, you were much more maybe that your identity was more kind of integrated into the work that you wanted to do. Is that fair to say? I mean, I had the same identity thing. I definitely, you know, my, my career is also built up of lots of big brands, but I think it was, I wanted to be really honest, like I said, about those conversations that I was having. And I was also reflecting a little bit on what I wanted my children to see. So, you know, I worked hard in my corporate career and I work very hard in my I don't know what to call it an entrepreneurial career was now but running our business together I work very hard in that and that means that there are some things that I you know this weekend we were practicing for a presentation that we've got coming up and that meant that I had to take some of my Saturday to do that and I actually don't mind those sacrifices when I work in the evening or have to work at weekend I, I am I'm comfortable with the choices that I make but I am conscious that my children see me making those choices and I want them to see me making those choices because I'm proud of them and that I feel those choices are making a difference to people and that they're helping people and I think I also got to this crux where I was at Microsoft and sometimes I'd be thinking oh gosh I'm working really late into the night to get this presentation done for somebody in the US and I was potentially resenting that sometimes and I thought I don't want my children to see me resenting the work that I'm doing or the way that I'm doing or when I'm doing my work I want them to think that work is this really positive thing where you learn and you develop and you make a difference and so I also think for me that was that tipping point that whilst it was always going to be a bit hard and whilst there was a bit of risk in making quite a big career pivot I knew that it would make me happy and I thought that the work that my children would see me doing would shape their understanding of what I think work can be and that was the thing for me that gave me the impetus to feel that this is the right thing to do right then for me 
I also think it's hard when you don't have role models around you. I think probably for both Helen and I, all of our networks have been built often in, you know, with people a bit like us. So who were working in big organizations, you know, quite a diverse network. And I work with some brilliant people and some incredibly creative people who actually I really miss now in, in what we do. And so I loved that world that I was part of. And I loved all those people that I spent time with. But I didn't know many people who had made that transition that we were thinking about making. And I didn't know that many people who certainly had done it at the time of life that we've chosen to do it. People were like, no, no, no. If you're going to do this, do it in like 10 years time. Do it in 15 years time where perhaps the money thing is less of an issue. You know, perhaps you've got to a point where you've got more financial security and stability. Is that not the time to do it? And, you know, I'd also got friends who we were all kind of in those big organizations doing jobs and kind of learning from each other. And that was kind of my peer group. And then suddenly you're the kind of the odd one out. And it's, we know it's always hard to be in the other box. It's always hard to have any kind of otherness. Now, crikey, we have a lot less otherness than other people. But still, it is difficult when you just don't see examples of other people doing what you're planning to do and that having worked out. So you're really having to be brave. I don't underestimate how it still took a lot of bravery from us, I think, to kind of walk away from something that was working for us and that we were really enjoying. It's not something that that many people do. No, it's not. And that that idea of having that reflected back at you and kind of seeing what it is that you could be I think is is really important and I think it's actually really interesting. So does that feel like something that you guys are kind of giving to people that they can kind of see other people who are doing things differently? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised us when the book came out was the amount of people that came up to us and they, they were like, thank you for giving me a way to describe my career that I feel that I can own and almost be proud of like some people seem to think that they'd had a career where they've moved around in different directions but they almost felt like they had done something wrong because it hadn't been the staircase and all of a sudden they had oh I can say I've got a squiggly career and squiggly careers are great because it means that I've learned these different things and I can bring new value and suddenly I have something that I'm proud of and I've got a language in which I can talk about it in a really positive way and I didn't feel like I had that before and it wasn't even you know, your tool on page 46 really helped me. It was just this identity of a squiggly career that meant I could talk positively about the journey that I'd had so far and also get excited about what could come next, even though it might not look like what someone might have expected me to do. So that's been a really positive reaction to it. Someone even told us, they got in touch with us on Instagram and said they took our book to a job interview and mid-interview took the book out and sort of waved it around. It's kind of bright yellow and quite hard to miss. Sort of going, oh, it's like this. This is kind of what I've done. And and actually kind of just, I mean, I really hope people don't need to do that. <laughs> like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't need to have to take a book to describe it. And I, one of my kind of things I really want is that organizations embrace people who've done lots of different things and moved in different directions. And actually that is really everyone's reality now. We always say, you know, there's no such thing as a straight line to success and everyone squiggles really. Even if on the surface, I think if someone's career looks really straightforward, I promise you when you get into the surface, like everyone's squiggling and sometimes that feels really positive and you feel really in control of that. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming and a bit knotty and a bit messy. And I think that is all of our realities now that we've got to the end of 2020. If people didn't feel squiggly before, they certainly do now. And the bit that we really kind of care about is, I think, helping people to draw their own squiggle, 
to figure out like what are they brilliant at what really motivates them not let any of those confidence gremlins hold them back and to have this perspective of possibilities to not feel like I've only got to limit myself or where I might go to kind of one specific career trajectory knowing that most of us are going to have four or five different types of career in our working life and we're all going to be working for who knows how long and I think when you recalibrate and redefine your relationship with work in a way where you sort of think okay this is always about being work in progress about exploring things I'm just really interested in and curious about and if you your identity becomes less about who you work for or where you work and we're all about you and what's the positive impact you want to make and I think that's the transition we've both made is going let go of that identity just being about where I am today and think of your identity more broadly you might be doing loads of different things but actually what do those things all have in common what's the kind of red thread that goes through them all I think when we both figured out oh actually the thing that really motivates us is like how how can we really practically make careers better for everyone like that's a kind of real really shared ambition and then suddenly that's your identity regardless of whether you're doing amazing if or not let's say it all goes wrong in the next six months I'm really confident Helen and I will still find a way to be doing that it might just look different Mm. but you've still got that that identity stays consistent I think once it becomes about you and the things that you stand for and that are really important to you rather than about anything that's kind of outside of you yeah absolutely no I love that and and what you mentioned about the confidence gremlins. I actually, for me, I was like, I was refreshing myself and I was looking at your book today and I was like, you know, I think for me, the confidence gremlins bit is probably one of the most challenging and important bits. And both of your confidence gremlins really resonated with me. (laughs) Um, So Sarah, you said it was, to summarize, uh, a fear of conflict and Helen, yours was a fear of not being liked. Now, this last year or so probably has been quite exposing (laughs) in in different ways with having your book out um, in the world and kind of this culmination of of all of your work kind of being more eyeballs on it, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Sarah, how has your kind of gremlin of unexpected disagreements, how, (laughs) how does that feel for you now? Well, so I don't think you kill a confidence gremlin. I think you cage them. So they don't hold you back from doing things that you want to do. So do I enjoy conflict and unexpected disagreement now? Absolutely not. (laughs) And can I watch any TV that has lots of kind of arguing as I see it? Like, no, it makes me really hot, really anxious, really sweaty. (laughs) And, And so that is still, that confidence gremlin still is still there. I think the thing that I have done over the past six or seven years is caged it to the point where it doesn't get in my way. And so if I need to have a difficult conversation... I will do that. If somebody has a different point of view to me, I think because I've, we we sometimes talk about moving from kind of limiting beliefs to limitless beliefs. And so Mm -hmm. I think I used to associate conflict with a kind of few different things. So let's say, Kate, you disagreed with me. I'd go to, Kate doesn't like me. This is not (laughs) going well. We're never going to recover from this. And almost, and, and oh, perhaps she doesn't think I'm credible or good at what I'm doing. And so there were so many kind of negative connotations with, the spiraling essentially that would happen in my head at that kind of moment and then I think I had a really important tipping point where I asked somebody I came out of a meeting and basically said that was horrendous that was like nine on the conflict scale everyone else is being really inappropriate so basically I was blaming everyone else (laughs) and then that person said to me he was like oh I thought it was fine and honestly initially I thought he was joking I was like oh you're joking he's like 
oh no Sarah like what was the problem and his point of view of exactly the same situation was well I'm just really pleased we had an open honest conversation yes it was direct but it was just you know people having different points of view at least it didn't happen outside of the meeting at least everyone felt trusted and respected enough to 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 do that and I almost stopped in my tracks and thought oh maybe everyone doesn't feel exactly as I feel in that in that kind of moment and I think that awareness that kind of understanding of actually I was putting a lot of assumptions into that kind of situation made me think the only way to cage a confidence gremlin is you have to take action this can't be about other people this can't be about blaming people and so I started to have to work out for myself lots of tactics to kind of help me in that moment and the first thing really was a mindset point was a mindset about actually if people disagree with me I actually tried to stop using the word conflict because I think Mm. conflict is a very strong word and I just went I went to disagreement so if people disagree with me now my assumption is oh it's great that we've got an open and trusted relationship so people feel they can disagree with me and actually when we have disagreements often that does mean you get to better answers and you get to better ideas and diversity of ideas and perspectives is brilliant that's how you solve problems so now I now have a really kind of positive relationship with what, what is it that's happening in that moment? And then that's a kind of mindset. So it stops you spiraling, makes you stay present. And then I think about, okay, so how am I going to actually respond in those moments? Because of course I still find them hard. And yeah. a great tactic for me has been about how do I ask really open questions? So rather than meeting, let's say very direct disagreement or unexpected disagreement, which is the things I find hardest with trying to be like that, which is so far from my comfort zone, what I actually do is think, right, I'm going to go into really active listening mode. I'm going to ask some really open questions. I'm really just going to try and understand. I'm not going to try and solve. I'm just going to try and understand. I'm really going to try and listen. And then that's that's worked brilliantly for me because then it just means that I don't start spiraling. I stay very present. I ask good questions and then we get to, surprise, surprise, it's absolutely fine. You get to better answers. I mean, I can describe it in that way, but it is really hard. You have to work out kind of what happens to you when those confidence gremlins kind of rear their ugly heads and then figure out what can I try to do differently and I promise you the first time you try the first time I tried to do ask a question or try to really active listen I was I was then almost beating myself up because I couldn't do it because it was too hard for me and I was like (laughs) and then I was getting into a weird spiral of like still spiraling in one sense and then also thinking oh why am I not listening better or why am I not staying present and you've just got to take loads of small steps and it is it is really hard but you can do it and it makes such a difference because it means you apply for the jobs that you'd love to do. It means you volunteer for the projects you're actually really interested in, but those confidence gremlins can get in your way of kind of putting yourself forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's the putting yourself forward. Helen, what about you with the kind of wanting, wanting to be liked thing? What was that like for you to publish a book and kind of have that part of you out in the world and to have to be like, okay, here we go. People might not (laughs) like it. What's that going to be like? So I think that was actually okay for me because I've worked hard on caging it before then. So Mm. the resting place that I think I've, I've got to is there's a quote that we often use, which is like run your own race. And I really, really believe that now. So I think before I used to think I need to be liked. I need to say everything with a smile my success depends on the people around me thinking that I'm a really nice person. And I thought that that would mean that I couldn't challenge people or if people didn't think I was doing a good job, they wouldn't like me and and all these, you know, other people's opinions 
and their responses to me would weigh on my my mind and would sort of inform whether I thought I'd done a good job or not and I started to observe other people that I really admired in the organizations I worked with and I I realized they were asking really difficult questions and actually they were quite direct and people still liked them and they admired them and actually being admired I started to realize that I didn't really want to be liked by everyone. I wanted to be admired. I wanted to be respected. That's what I loved. The people that Mm. I was looking up to, it's that their perspectives were valued and that they were admired for their impact. And so I think I started to unhook my need to be liked and probably reattach it to sort of this, okay, well, if it wasn't being liked, if it was being admired for my impact, what would that look like? And that took me to a slightly different place. But then I also started just generally to think more about what do I think about myself and what do I think about my impact and do I like who I am and do I admire the things that I'm doing and actually those questions not saying that they're always easy to answer but that was something that I was in control of I'm not in control of whether someone leaves us a good review or a bad review or whether somebody (laughs) likes me at work I'm not in control of that stuff but I'm in control of whether I think I've done a good job Um, whether I think I've done my best job and how I think I could improve. And so I think I just started to look much more on that. And so Sarah will often comment more on reviews we'll get than I will. You're so good at that. You're so so pragmatic. And like, if you know, if you know, obviously, because people comment on our podcast and our work and our work is quite out there in the world now, which is something I think I felt very nervous about. But Helen's point is always, and she's always reminding me of this, she's like, well, are we happy with what we've done? That's got to be your first question. Like, well, what do you think? And what's your point of view and your, your own opinion and perspective? And of course, you've got to be really open, open to kind of listening to others and, and know what you think of that and, and work out whether that feedback is useful for you and what you might do differently. It's not about being close to that. But I think it's also about having the self-belief that's got to be your starting point. I think self-belief has got to be your starting point. And then, like, I think somebody wrote um, a book review of Squiggly Career and just sort of said, oh, you have to like work quite hard. There's a lot of exercises in there. I don't really like that. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh no, they've not really enjoyed it. But I was like, but that is our book. They're re- they're, yeah. It is quite, you know, like If you don't want to work hard and figure this out, then don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, this is not really for me. I was like, oh, okay. And you just sort of have to go, Fair enough. And you can't be, and I think Emma Gannon always says this, I think really well. She was like, you can't be all things to all people. And when I actually look at people that, you know, we admire now and aspire to and like just role models, people you want to spend your time with, I think they have figured out it's like do a brilliant job for the people who you are aiming to support or help or be useful for. But inevitably, that doesn't mean that you you kind of can't be for everyone. And I think I probably spent the first part of my career trying to do that, to be honest, trying to be, you know, like kind of good at everything yes, and yeah. like really shy away from having any weaknesses, make sure those were either hidden or try and get loads better at them. And I think when you do that, you can end up in the land of like middleness and mediocreness, neither of which I suspect are words, which is always worrying, isn't it, when you write books? I, but, I think they are. No, oh, <laughs> you're going to go with it. That's great. I'll, I'll take it, Kate. I'll take it. But I think that's the point is going... I'd rather 10 people absolutely love what we do and find it really helpful. And then one person goes, that's not for me. And you have to be okay with that one person who says it's not for me. I have to be okay with the fact that my boyfriend of 22 years has never listened to a podcast episode or read our book. So I'm a tiny bit bitter about, but I'm obviously, <laughs> obviously I'm getting through it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think there's another factor that's really 
important when you're looking at your confidence and that's the community of people that you build around you and Mm -hmm. I would say that one thing that Sarah and I have that's really important for us and our confidence is that we have each other that we have each other so those moments whenever I might be triggered by a situation where somebody doesn't like me. Sarah can remind me of my own advice and I can do the same to her because we know what each other's gremlins are and we have worked through them together and we still work through them together. And I recognize that having a business partner who is also your best friend that you've also known for 20 years is a bit of a rarity. But I still think thinking about your confidence community like who do you surround yourself with who you can be honest with about the situations you're in and how it might be making you feel and can give you that perspective and can be that source of support who are those people for you because I think that's been a big part of us Mm. being able to cage our gremlins yeah absolutely and I think what's so funny is that if both of you didn't cage your gremlins it would be really difficult for you both to have an honest conversation <laughs> because so, so worried about offending offending Sarah and so like, oh, we're going to completely avoid this conflict altogether. Um, I know a lot of people, my, myself included, who would be very nervous about having that level of collaboration um, with somebody, never mind a business, also writing a book with somebody, and then also having that person be be your best friend. That's you really have kind of all your vulnerabilities out on the table kind of constantly. What's the kind of key for you guys to find that balance in, in your many different forms of collaboration? And um, I think that I am much better with Sarah. I think I do a good job on my own, but I think I do a brilliant job with Sarah. And she stretches me and challenges me and adds a different dimension to my thinking that I couldn't get to alone. So I think part selfishly, I go, my impact, in whatever I do will be bigger and better with Sarah. I also learn through Sarah in so many ways because of something that she's read or an idea that she's had or just a different way of looking at the world. And I mean, there's, there's loads more. Like I generally enjoy spending time with Sarah and we have a shared history. Now I was reading an article recently about that Daniel Pink had shared and it talks about how many hours it takes to build a proper friendship. And it said something like, you know, it takes over 200 hours of time to build, you know, a really long-term friendship. And I don't, I have no idea how many hours we've got, but it's more than that. And so I think there's now, there's now also the accumulated investment and knowledge of each other, but I enjoy spending time with her. We spent a lot of hours together and there is no one that I learn with and from more than Sarah. And there is nobody who I think can help me have the impact that I want to have on the world as much as working with Sarah would be my kind of conclusion. And any challenges or any conflicts that we have are minimal in the context of I think the impact that we can have together. Oh, I could just go, oh, yeah, right back at you. <laughs> just like, you know. I've got a different perspective, which is that I just haven't found another one. <laughs> yeah, I've, got, I've not found anyone else. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the other thing that's been interesting, which is a slightly different point to Helen's, is this year has actually been the first time that we have worked together, all of our time together. So until this point, actually, we've known each other for a long time. We've been really good friends. We were kind of friends first. And then we kind of ran a business on the periphery of other things going on in our lives. So this is the first time where we've spent, we've been kind of immersed, really immersed in each other's mm. world. Because even when we were writing our book, we'd got other jobs. And now, like when you're running a business, you really are kind of very, very in it with each other up and down that kind of cliche of a roller coaster. And I think my biggest 
learning probably this year has been the more time we spend together, the more I realize the differences that we have. And it's in our differences that I think we are at our strongest. And so I'm much more of an introvert. Helen's much more of an extrovert. Helen will make stuff happen at the speed of light. I will have more ideas than you'll ever know what to do with. And actually, I think the more we've started running our business and actually the ins and outs of what that means to to run a business, the more I'm incredibly grateful for those differences. You know, things like lots of people do co-CEOs of a business and we don't. Helen is our CEO for all the right reasons because without Helen, our business wouldn't run. All that would happen is I would come up with loads of ideas, make some stuff, (laughs) and that'll be about it. That's about as far as we'd ever get. And yeah, with Helen, that stuff gets out there. Those ideas that I have two weeks later suddenly appear because she's gone away and tested some tech or written something or done something. And then suddenly it's a thing. And then actually I'm quite good after that at then improving those things and can be quite gritty when I need to be. And so I think that's been the really interesting thing for me. And at times that also makes it harder. I would also say, and Helen, I haven't even talked about this yet, but I've also found it harder this year at times because sometimes when you work very differently or you approach things differently, that's hard. And that yeah. does feel tough. And sometimes I felt like because we don't, we're not a really big business, I'm like, I don't want to spend more time with Helen. I want to go out for a walk by myself or I want to spend time with some other people. And I think knowing that and being honest about that is is okay too. It's a relationship. You, you yeah. have to. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I go for lots of walks by myself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, so earlier, Helen, you were talking about wanting to show your children the kind of relationship with your work that you would be proud of and to be doing work that you would be proud of. So I, I'm actually I'm actually pregnant and Aww, I wrote congratulations. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um I wrote I wrote a chapter in in my book about you know what to do when you think that you might want to have it all. And I, I did a lot of reading when I was writing that chapter about uh you know the pram in the hallway quote and I read a lot of like Maggie O'Farrell wrote a lot of articles about like how actually it kind of sharpens your mind and your efficiency levels. Is that the case? Like how have you, how, 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 um, you know, it's a really tricky question to answer because I think everyone experiences being a parent differently. Mm-hmm. And I think people's expectations going into it are different and their their experiences and all kinds of things. You know, is your baby a good sleeper? Do they get into a routine? Is your baby well? Is your work supportive? There are like so many factors. So I can only kind of speak from the reality that I had. And I think that you will have to make some choices because, you know, just like if you were going to study something as well Mm -hmm. as you work, you suddenly introduce this other factor into your life and it will consume time. And that is both waking time and time when you thought you might be sleeping, like you will be tired and they will also interrupt your days in ways that you didn't expect. You'll get a call from a nursery at some point in the future or they'll be ill and you'll have to be off with them. So Having children requires you to make choices regardless of your situation and experience. And I think you have to work out what those choices are. So I have made some choices about the childcare that I have that enables me to be my best. I've made choices with my husband about how we juggle our jobs. I've made choices about when I do my work and how I do my work. And the thing is, I think you've just got to be really comfortable with your choices. And so if you decide that you want to work part-time so that you can be work Kate for a few days a week and you can be mum Kate for a few days a week that's amazing it's a choice that you have to be comfortable with and I 
I remember very early on, I've got two children, my little boy, Henry, he's he's uh, five now, nearly six. And very early on, I made some choices that just didn't work for me. So I thought I was going to do these compressed hours and I was going to try and you know <laughs> manage that. We had the side project at the time and I was studying, I was doing my MBA, I was working for Virgin and I just had Henry. Oh and I was like, I'm going to do compressed hours and I'm going to do all this. And I remember being so distracted I was at home and I was trying to do a work call and Henry, my, my baby, was on the floor. And I just thought that this this isn't the right choice because I'm better with boundaries and I was blurring them way too much. I was just trying to like be at home and do some work and yeah. it just it wasn't working for me. And so I had to put some really fixed boundaries in and I had to have childcare that protected those boundaries. And I had to say, I'll be a mum outside of this time but in this time I'm work I'm work Helen and I'm all into my work and I'm fine with that and so yeah work out what your choices are don't judge yourself or be judged by other people about those choices and also know that your choices can change so I think you might make a choice at one point and you might be like oh do you know what I actually quite enjoy spending time with them so maybe I will I will now do that part-time thing that I didn't think I was ever going to want to do and that 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 is fine too so I've made choices I'm really comfortable with them everything's working out now when my second child goes to school maybe my choices will look different because I'll have two of them at school and that's fine I'll make some new choices and I'll be happy with them as well yeah and I think a few people I speak to feeling guilt comes up again and again so maybe making the choices that Helen describes but then people spend so much time feeling guilty about them and that's also because of external pressures right so Mm. I remember a neighbor on our street once saying to me after I'd had my little boy Max like oh are you working full-time or part-time and I said I'm working full-time and that was very much a choice I'd made and I got the side head like oh dear response the (laughs) ah like oh that's a shame I was like why is it a shame like I'm absolutely loving it He's a nightmare. He was he was a nightmare baby. I don't want to spend more time with him. He's horrendous. So and he was, he really was for like two years. Fair. It was awful. Fair. Um and so, you know, I'd have worked more days if I could have done, but just that wasn't really an option. So I think there's a, there is a little, little bit of pressure, and especially if you're doing it differently to your friends. I think particularly mm-hmm. your friends probably. I mean, certainly I'm doing it differently to how like my mum did it. Like my mum was around for his loads and that was brilliant. And we had such a kind of supportive like family setup but also one where she was always there for is like always put us first and I don't do that in in the same way and you know when you're kind of last to pick up your kid from nursery all those kind of things there are so many things I think potentially are designed to make you feel bad about the choices that you've made and I don't know why maybe that's because maybe it's because you I enjoy what I do but I was like I'm not going to start feeling guilty about not feeling guilty and I don't I don't feel guilty I think well I love what I do I do believe that if you are happy your kid will be happier yeah and then I think there's some really practical things that you just kind of have to figure out and to Helen's point believe that where you are now is not where you're always going to be and people make lots of different decisions for different reasons so crikey let's definitely not judge each other but let's really not judge ourselves yeah oh no that's so refreshing yeah thank you for that that's really helpful. Selfishly, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure listeners will find that helpful as well. But I particularly find that very helpful. So thank you. Um, so for my for my last question, um, the title of this podcast is the heart of it. And I know earlier, Sarah, you said that you both really have this this shared ambition about you know making work better for everyone. How about individually? What do you kind of feel that for each of you individually is is at the heart of of what it is that you do? For me, at the heart of it is 
a combination of helping people to be their best at work because I love work. And I'm like, I want to help people love work. We spend so much time there. I think work, work is this amazing like vehicle for change and impact and development that I want people to help love it. But then I also think for me, there's a selfish thing about seeing how much I can achieve. Like I have a value of achievement and suddenly I have this opportunity through our business to achieve more than I ever probably thought I could because it's almost a bit unlimited. I feel like in an organization, there are always a few limits in the organizations that I worked with. You know, I had to, it was what the department wanted to do or what the, you know, the the CEO had in mind that year. And so my achievement always had those sort of boundaries around it. Whereas now I kind of think, oh, I feel like there are no boundaries. And I don't know how much of an impact I could make, but I feel like I've never been in a better place to kind of see what that could look like so I think it is about helping people with work but it's also seeing how big the impact the dent on the world that I can make is yeah I think for me we talk about I want everybody to feel like they can have a career as individual as they are and I think if we can help do that and I think if I can particularly help do that by using the things that I love to do the fact that I'm insatiably curious that I've I, I love coming up with new ideas. I can think really creatively about what that might look like. If everyone can feel like their time at work is time well spent and that you look back on your week, on your month, on your year, on your latest career, and you think, oh, brilliant, I, I've i learned from that. I've taken so much from it. And then I'm going to go on and do whatever my next squiggle looks like. I think just giving people that ability to see themselves as work in progress, to be really positive about themselves and their impact that they can have through the work that they do, people having meaningful work and that feeling really personal. I think if I can use some of those ideas that I have, probably one in 10, which is a decent idea, uh, to, to make that difference so that people can enjoy their squiggly careers, then I feel like that will be my time well spent. Oh, that's wonderful. Helen, Sarah, Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you online? Oh, lots lots of places, but probably the starting point would be Instagram because it is a lovely community of people that share and participate and get involved in all things squiggly careers. So that's just at amazing if. And if people want some additional support, then probably our podcast is a really good place to go. So that's just squiggly careers. And there are lots of episodes to help people think through their world of work and get ideas for actions so that they can take ownership for all of their squiggles. And tell us the next book is called You Coach You. When is that out? When it's been written. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that, Helen. Our editor might be listening. It will be out in January 2022 is the official answer. The unofficial answer is we need to do some writing. Rapidly. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. Thank you both so, so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. You're very Kate. welcome, Congratulations. Kate. Congratulations again. Thank you. Helen and Sarah love working and getting the best out of work more than any two people I've ever met. Their passion and enthusiasm for changing the world of work is really inspiring and admirable, which is clearly why both their book and their amazing IF community are absolutely thriving. A huge thank you to both Helen and Sarah for their insight and advice, particularly around balancing your work life and family life, which I know is a struggle for so many people at the moment. 
make sure to check out their book, Squiggly Careers, which is available at all good bookshops, as well as their podcast of the same name. Thank you for listening to Series 1 of The Heart of It. And thank you again to all of my brilliant guests. It's been fascinating to learn about the different approaches people have to their work and the way they balance their energy and mental health. I've also been really surprised how nearly all of our guests have had very different answers to what's at the heart of their work. You can follow the podcast on social media at Heart of It Podcast, and make sure you stay subscribed for news about future series.